Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to an echo of glory. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 12th episode of An Echo of Glory, a 200% podcast. My name is Ian King, and over the course of this series, I'll be telling you the history of football in England and Wales, tracing the story of the game here from the mob game of the Middle Ages through to the modern day. Few would have realised it at the time, but Derby County's first division championship win of 1975 was the end of an era for the Football League. Liverpool would come to dominate English football for a decade and a half in a way that no club had ever done before. They wouldn't be the only players involved in a sustained period of success for English clubs in Europe though. This is the story of football in England and Wales between 1975 and 1981. On the same day that Bill Shankly retired as the Liverpool manager, the club, somewhat unusually, also signed a new player. Ray Kennedy arrived at Anfield from Arsenal, where he'd been a forward. His early performances, however, were not encouraging. Despite having cost a club record £200,000, Kennedy scored just five goals in his first 25 games for Liverpool. It might have been the beginning of a tapering off of Kennedy's career, but new manager Bob Paisley simply moved him to the left side of midfield, where he remained a linchpin for the remainder of the decade. The word understated doesn't really do Bob Paisley justice. The team that Paisley inherited from Shankly was strong, and was only getting stronger. They hadn't finished below third place in the table since the arrival of Kevin Keegan in 1971, and there was no disgrace in losing to the Leeds United team of 1974. Paisley's first season in charge was not entirely plain sailing. Shankly, it turned out, might not necessarily have found retirement that easy. He had to be banned from the club's Melwood training ground for turning up uninvited presumably with his competitive spirit not having been satiated by being pushed towards his dotage at the age of 60. Liverpool, however, still finished that season in second place, behind Derby County. The following season, however, a touch paper was lit. Liverpool won the First Division Championship by a single point from surprise runners-up Queen's Park Rangers. They also won the UEFA Cup for the second time in four years, beating Club Brugge over two legs in the final, after coming from two goals down to win 3-2 in the first leg at Anfield. 
Paisley continued the upward trajectory built upon Shankly's solid foundations. Terry McDermott arrived from Newcastle in 1975, David Johnson from Ipswich in 1976, and Kenny Dalgleish came from Celtic to replace Kevin Keegan in 1977, and a year later, Graham Souness arrived from Middlesbrough, shortly to be followed by Alan Kennedy. Every new signing seemed to be an upgrade, like mechanics fine-tuning the engine of a Formula One car. In 1977, they were pushed all the way to the last day of the season by Manchester City in the league, but lost the FA Cup final to Manchester United. But considerably more important than any of this, they ended their season by beating Borussia Mönchengladbach to win the European Cup for the first time. They were the first English European champions since Manchester United, nine years earlier. Their biggest test came in the quarter-finals of that year's competition. After having seen off Crusaders of Northern Ireland and Trabzonspor of Turkey, they were paired up to play Saint-Étienne. After having lost the first leg in France by a goal to nil, the second leg saw a turnaround that would go a long way towards building the myth of Anfield on a European night. Pegged back to one all after having taken an early lead, they needed two goals to stay in the competition. But a second-half turnaround in front of a swaying cop saw them through by three goals to two on aggregate. FC Zurich, by comparison, were brushed aside by six goals to one on aggregate in the semi-finals. Fittingly, for a club that runs a rich seam in hyperbole, the match was played in the Olympic Stadium in the Eternal City. Terry McDermott gave Liverpool a first-half lead, but seven minutes into the second half, the Danish midfielder Alan Siemensen levelled for the scores for Borussia. A thumping header from Tommy Smith and a Phil-nil penalty kick, however, made the game safe for Liverpool. It had taken Bob Paisley three seasons to overtake Shankly's record of one European trophy for the club. Liverpool were denied a championship treble the following season, but satisfied themselves by successfully defending their European Cup. For the second year in a row, Borussia Mönchengladbach lay in wait, this time in the semi-finals. Again, Liverpool had cruised through to that point. As holders of the competition, they received a bye in the first round this time around, and then beat Dynamo Dresden and Benfica with some degree of comfort. In the semi-finals, again the first leg was in West Germany, and again Gladbach won it this time by two goals to one, with Liverpool's precious away goal coming in the 88th minute, with the score at 1-0 to Gladbach. A last gasp free kick won the match for the home side. There was little of the drama of a year earlier in the second leg this time around though. Liverpool blew Gladbach away at Anfield, 3-0 up after 56 minutes. The final was at Wembley in May 1978. The same venue that hosted Manchester United becoming the first English club to win the tournament exactly 10 years earlier. Their opponents were Club Brugge of Belgium. It was their first final, but they were not to be taken lightly. They'd already beaten Atletico Madrid and Juventus in the previous two rounds. On the night, however, the match turned out to be a bit of a damp squib. Enlivened 19 minutes into the second half by Kenny Dalglish's cute lob over a sprawling goalkeeper. 
It was a goal worthy of winning a match that wasn't really worthy of being a major European final. Not, of course, that this mattered much to Liverpool. Their 1978 European Cup win made them the first English club to win the trophy twice. They haven't been second in this list to another English club since. And here's Dalglish. Over his head nicely and uh, De Cuba was there, but so is Saunas there. Will he get a shot in? There was, however, one club that managed to tie this record with Liverpool for a couple of the seasons at least. On the banks of the River Trent, a revolution was brewing. Brian Clough signed at the city ground on the 6th of January 1975 and Peter Taylor joined him in June of the following year. For Forrest, it was an incredible swoop. They were getting a double act that had, just two and a half years earlier, taken a somewhat down-at-heel second division club from the East Midlands not only into the first division, but then to the Football League Championship. Forrest were in 13th place in the second division at the point of Clough's appointment, and finished the season in 16th place in the table. But that wasn't really the point. Just as he had done at Hartlepool's and Derby, Clough started working on the team as though it was a project. John Robertson and Martin O'Neill, who had both put in transfer requests, were persuaded to stay. John McGovern, again, and John O'Hare, both members of the 1972 Derby team, arrived. At the end of the season, Frank Clark was signed on a free transfer. Forrest finished the 1975-76 season in 8th place in the 2nd Division. When Taylor arrived, the mix started to gain even greater cohesion. On the last day of the 1976-77 season, Nottingham Forest beat Millwall by a goal to nil. Fourth place Bolton Wanderers had a game in hand against Wolves, but the Forest team were on the plane to Marbella as Bolton lost. Nottingham Forest were back in the first division for the first time in five years, and they landed in it like a bomb going off. They went top of the table after three straight wins at the start of the season and, although they lost to Arsenal in their fifth match, those wins kept coming. At the end of November, they lost two successive away league matches at Chelsea and Leeds, but after this, they remained unbeaten for the remainder of the season, winning the first division title by seven points from Liverpool, including drawing their last three matches after the title was won. It was a scarcely believable performance, and on top of this, they won the League Cup as well. The following season, the club embarked upon its first ever season of European football, and the first team they were drawn against in the European Cup was Liverpool. Leeds United and Liverpool had dominated near the top of the first division table throughout the early 1970s, 
that something at Anfield had changed under Bob Paisley. This team was getting stronger and stronger. They'd go on to win the league again in 1979 and 1980. This European Cup match, though, would be the ultimate decider of Nottingham Forest's authenticity as champions for those who'd been unable to believe their eyes the previous season. It was a test that Forest passed with flying colours. They won the first leg 2-0 at the city ground and strangled Liverpool to a goalless draw in the second leg to win the tie with room to spare. The next two rounds were fairly straightforward with a 7-2 aggregate win against AEK Athens and a 5-2 win against the Swiss club Grasshopper setting up a semi-final match against Cologne during which time they also secured the signature of Trevor Francis Britain's first million-pound transfer from Birmingham City. The first leg at the city ground was a roller coaster of a game, with Forrest coming from two down to lead 3-2, before Yasuhiko Odukera brought the visitors back into the game. The three away goals meant that Forrest really had to win in Cologne, but an Ian Bowyer goal 20 minutes into the second half proved enough to win the game for Nottingham Forrest, setting up a final in Munich against Malmo of Gothenburg. Forrest had finished the league season as runners-up to Liverpool this time around, eight points adrift. They only lost three matches, but drew 18. Regardless, Liverpool won with 30 wins from 42 matches, having conceded just 16 goals all season. But the European Cup was quite a consolation for Forrest. Right on half-time, Trevor Francis, who'd only been with the club for four months, stooped to head them into the lead. They had a storm to weather in the second half come what may, but still held on to cause perhaps the biggest surprise the final of this competition had seen to that point. In less than four and a half years, Brian Clough had taken Nottingham Forest from the nether regions of the second division to become the champions of Europe, and the following season they repeated the trick coming from behind to beat Ajax by two goals to one in the semi-finals for a final against a Hamburg team featuring one Kevin Keegan, who'd gone on to win the Ballon d'Or twice since moving from Liverpool in 1977. Forrest, who'd already lost that season's League Cup final to Wolverhampton Wanderers, upset the apple cart again. This time, a low shot 20 minutes in from John Robertson was enough to give them another 1-0 win. Their parity in Europe would, however, only last for two more seasons before Liverpool beat Real Madrid by a goal to nil in Paris to win their third European Cup. The Nottingham Forest miracle, however, has become part of the club's culture ever since. Woodcock. It's particularly disappointing to score at half-time, bearing in mind that Malmo had lost two important players before the start of the match and had lost a third during the course of the first half. Robertson, the first time we've seen them attack them, and there's Francis! Well, that's what I've wanted to see Robertson do. And Trevor Francis, the million-pound man, puts his name on the score sheet and returns a great deal of the check. Robertson, the first time he's attacked them, used his face, a fine cross, and in comes Francis to break the deadlock. The following year, though, both Forrest and Liverpool were outshone by a surprise championship challenge from Aston Villa. 
Villa had endured a rough time of things following relegation from the First Division in 1967. They were relegated again three years later, and it took until 1972 for them to get back into the second tier again. Promotion back to the First Division came in 1975, and this was followed by winning the League Cup two years later. Although Villa's league performances since returning to the First Division had been reasonably strong, there was little at the start of the 1980-81 season to suggest that manager Ron Saunders' team was capable of winning the league. With both Nottingham Forest and Liverpool stalling, the title race fell between Villa and Ipswich Town. Villa had been knocked out of the League Cup in September by Cambridge United, and when the third round draw came around, they were drawn to play Ipswich at Portman Road. Ipswich won by a goal to nil. It was a result that came to benefit Aston Villa though. Ipswich started to stumble as they chased trophies on three fronts. They reached the FA Cup semi-finals but were beaten by West Bromwich Albion and got to the final of the UEFA Cup as well. All of this, however, proved to be a little bit of a distraction for Ipswich. Villa, already out of the Cups, kept on winning in the league and that was enough for them to eventually lift the First Division title by three points. Saunders had used just 14 players all season. Ipswich satisfied themselves by winning the UEFA Cup, beating AZ Alkmaar by five goals to four on aggregate in the two-legged final. Liverpool, meanwhile, got themselves back to winning ways in the European Cup, beating Real Madrid and Paris by a goal to nil to win the trophy for the third time. It was the fifth season in a row that an English club had lifted the trophy. There was a sting in the tail of this season for Aston Villa though. In February 1982, Saunders resigned suddenly as the Villa manager and went straight to local rivals Birmingham City. He was replaced by his former assistant Tony Barton. Villa made it all the way though to the European Cup final in Rotterdam to play Bayern Munich. Barton's plans were seriously disrupted after just 10 minutes though when he was forced to make his only substitution, veteran goalkeeper Jimmy Rimmer suffering a recurrence of a shoulder injury and having to be replaced by his understudy, Nigel Spink. Peter Wyth scored the only goal of the match midway through the second half, but the hero of the evening was Spink, who pulled off a string of outstanding saves, despite it only being his second appearance for the club. If there was a silver lining for veteran goalkeeper Jimmy Rimmer, it was that his 10 minutes on the pitch earned him a record. Rimmer had earned a European Cup winner's medal from the bench as the reserve to Alex Stepney for Manchester United at the 1968 final. He got a medal this time around even though he'd only played 10 minutes and this made him the first English player to win European Cup winner's medals with two different English clubs. Shaw, Williams prepared to adventure down the left. There's a good ball played in for Tony Morley. Oh, he missed it! And it is! Peter Will! Still out in the lead! A brilliant breakout! And look at the embracing! And now look at the replay! Great work up on that left-hand side. A lovely break by Morley. He turned him one way, he turned him another. And in the end, Peter Way said thank you off the post. 1-0 to Aston Villa. Halfway through the second half. 
it is not a better example of what football is all about than I don't know what is. It could have been 3 0 down. Back at home, meanwhile, the Football League was continuing its apparent policy of evolution rather than revolution. At the bottom of the fourth division, there was still no automatic promotion or relegation. Those successive votes in 1977 and 1978 replaced Workington and Southport with Wimbledon and Wigan Athletic, and this hinted that the closed shop days might be coming to an end. The top clubs from the Northern Premier League and the Southern League broke away though in 1979 to form the Alliance Premier League, a top division for the non-league game which, it was hoped, would increase pressure on the Football League to end its 90 years as an effective closed shop. The re-election system had been damaged by multiple non-league clubs seeking election into the league each summer, splitting the votes of Football League clubs who wanted new clubs to join. Early in the 1980s, it was confirmed that there would now only be one applicant from the non-league game per season. If the Football League wasn't going to grant automatic promotion and relegation yet, the formation of the Alliance Premier League would paint the clearest picture yet of what such a world would look like. Another portent for the future came in 1978. ITV's The Big Match traditionally screened match highlights on Sunday afternoons, while the BBC's Match of the Day screened them on Saturday evenings. But in 1978... John Bromley and Michael Grade at London Weekend Television audaciously and secretively won exclusive rights to all-league football coverage for ITV in a move that came to be described as snatch of the day by the tabloid press. Questions were asked in Parliament and the BBC complained to the Monopolies and Mergers Commission who referred the matter to the Office of Fair Trading. They blocked the move but the BBC were forced to allow ITV to take over the Saturday night slot in alternating seasons. This new arrangement meant that Match of the Day was moved to Sunday afternoons for alternate seasons for the next contract, starting from 1980. ITV may have missed out on the exclusive deal, but their actions would be replicated some years later, and achieving alternate seasons on Saturday nights, when they were considerably bigger viewing figures, was a considerable improvement on the deal they'd had before. By the time of the next round of television contract negotiations, though, the broadcasting environment would be very different indeed. Good evening, and tonight the big story concerns... Any Englishman that is worth his salt would want to manage the England team, said Don Reavy, 
as the former Leeds United manager was unveiled as the new national team manager in 1974. Reevee had, of course, completely remodelled his former club throughout the early to mid-1960s, and there were signs of history repeating itself when Reevee requested a new look for his team, an Admiral-produced England team strip, a bold move at the time, and got the Wembley crowd singing Land of Hope and Glory before kick-off at matches. All seemed to be going well for Reevy initially. His first season in charge kicked off with a 3-0 win against Czechoslovakia in a European Championship qualifier and also took in a home-friendly win against West Germany and a 5-1 thrashing of Scotland in the home internationals. Things started to fall apart with a surprising haste, however, in the autumn of 1975 when, in the space of just three weeks, England contrived to lose 2-1 in their return match against Czechoslovakia, which nullified the advantage they'd run up by beating them in their opening match, and then finding themselves eliminated after a limp one-all draw in Portugal, before even the two-legged quarter-final stage at which Ramsey had tripped up four years earlier. Things didn't improve from there on. England lost to Scotland at Hampden Park in May 1976 and their appearance at the Bicentennial celebrations ended in a win and a loss against Italy and Brazil respectively. And by this time, criticism of his management style was starting to grow. Reevy was particularly criticised for his constant changing of players during the Euro 76 qualifying group and in particular his decision to drop captains Emlyn Hughes and Alan Ball from his squad entirely, his mistrust of fair players such as Charlie George and Alan Hudson, and his willingness to play players out of position. And with England unseeded for the 1978 World Cup qualifiers, they had to win a four-team group which also contained Finland, Luxembourg and, somewhat ominously, Italy. England's failure to qualify for the 1978 World Cup finals wasn't the seismic shock that their failure of four years earlier had been. Two factors ultimately proved decisive in their failure. A 2-0 defeat against Italy in their second group match in October 1976 and their failure to score enough goals against the other two teams in the group. By the time England played Italy at Wembley in their penultimate match in October 1977, their chances of making the finals were somewhat slim. They won 2-0 that night, but this result left them with an identical record to Italy, who had one match left, a home match against Luxembourg. When they coasted to a 3-0 win, England were out, again. By this time, however, Reevee had gone. At the start of an extremely Reevee-esque tour of South America in the summer of 1977, came a story that would stir up the tabloids for the whole of the summer. Reevee missed the first match against Brazil in Rio de Janeiro for what he claimed was a scouting assignment on Italy, when in fact he had travelled to Dubai for contract negotiations with the United Arab Emirates. Reevee asked for his contract with England to be cancelled, which the FA refused to do, and they offered Reevee their full support, despite having already approached Bobby Robson of Ipswich Town to replace him. The game with Brazil ended in a 0-0 draw, and their tour of South America concluded with further draws against Argentina and Uruguay. On the 12th of July 1977, though, 
Reevee revealed in an exclusive interview with the Daily Mail that he was quitting the England job to become the manager of the UAE. The FA suspended him from football for 10 years on a charge of bringing the game into disrepute. He contested this suspension in a lawsuit against the FA though, and the court overturned the suspension after ruling that the FA had overreached its powers. This wasn't one-sided of course. Sir Harold Thompson, the FA chair whose treatment of Sir Alf Ramsey had disappointed so many people in 1974, didn't much like Reevee either, and the haste with which they approached Bobby Robson hinted at a desire to get Reevee out of the job. After Robson turned down the offer though, the job was instead given to the West Ham general manager Ron Greenwood. Benetti walking forward into the England wall. And Casio's uh, explained to the referee that he doesn't think they're far enough away. There's some pushing in the wall, but Eddie's right in the middle of it. Capello leaves it for Casio. Antonioni deflected 1 0. Clements, I don't think, has got a hope there. The ball was deflected wide of him, and England go behind after 36 and a half minutes. So after that highly promising start by England, they're 1-0 down. Calcio. Cherry. Pacchetti for Italy. Bonetti. Calcio to number four, Bonetti. England may have felt a little aggrieved at failing to qualify for Argentina, but their complaints were nothing in comparison with those of Wales. The Welsh had got further than the English in the qualifying stages for Euro 76, only losing to Yugoslavia in the two-legged quarter-finals, and in 1978 World Cup qualifying, they were drawn in a group of three with Scotland and Czechoslovakia. They lost to Scotland in their opening match by a goal to nil at Hampden Park, but bounced back with a 3-0 win against the reigning European champions Czechoslovakia in their second match. This all set up a crucial return match against Scotland. Normally, Ninian Park would have been the venue for such a match, but this particular venue was unable to be used after crowd trouble in the previous match against Yugoslavia. And the Football Association of Wales instead made the decision to take the game to Liverpool FC's Anfield and its greater money-making capacity, rather than Wrexham's racecourse ground, which would have been the obvious second choice. Almost 51,000 people turned out for the match, but most of them were Scotland supporters, Wales had turned a home match into an away match, and with 12 minutes to play and the score still goalless, a long throw from Asa Hartford was punched further across the goal by Scotland's Joe Jordan. To general disbelief and a fist clench from Jordan, the referee gave Scotland a penalty kick, which Don Masson converted. Five minutes later, 
Kenny Dalglish added a second, and Wales's hopes of qualifying for the World Cup finals lay in tatters. Joe Jordan remains, unsurprisingly, an infamous character in the history of Welsh football. Wales still haven't qualified for a World Cup finals since 1958. Johnson with it. Jordan's there. Field surely a handball penalty kick. It's a penalty kick to Scotland. A handball, if ever there was one. The referee perfectly correct. Watch it. Up goes the hand and the punch. If ever there was one. A penalty kick. And Di Davis and the Welsh players are out there. And Don Masson is left with the responsibility. The Welsh are very unhappy about it. The fist was there. Don Masson to take this penalty. And I think he's aware of the significance of it. Masson to take it. And he's done it! Of course, the reason why this match was being played at Anfield in the first place was hooliganism which by 1977 was locked into a downward spiral of increasingly high-profile incidents, increasingly futile punishments and increasingly hysterical media coverage. Sporadic trouble at matches continued. In September 1977, when Manchester United supporters were involved in serious trouble before, during and after their European Cup Winners' Cup match in Saint-Étienne, UEFA handed down the unusual punishment of having them play the second leg more than 200 kilometres from Old Trafford. After a frantic search to find an appropriate distance from Manchester, both London and Glasgow were explored amongst others, it was finally agreed that they should play the return leg at Plymouth Argyle's home park, where a crowd of 32,000 saw them edge through to the next round, where they were beaten by Porto. It was only a matter of time before this particular virus spread to the England national team as well. Ron Greenwood had had a fairly successful start to his time as manager. He was unable to get the team to Argentina, but results and performances had improved to a point where it started to look as though Greenwood might be the manager to bring a disjointed and confused team back together. And meanwhile, UEFA were refreshing the European Championships. In 1977, they voted to extend the finals of the tournament from the four-team mini-tournament that had been running since 1960 to eight teams. Six countries expressed an interest in hosting it, and this was whittled down to two, England and Italy, before the vote went to Italy. Qualifying for these revamp finals, though, was going to be arduous. England's qualifying group also featured Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, Bulgaria and Denmark, with only the winners qualifying. Greenwood's team, however, sailed through qualifying, dropping just one point from their eight matches and winning it by six, confidence growing further still when they brushed aside the world champions Argentina by three goals to one at Wembley in May 1980, despite a relatively unconvincing home international tournament which featured a 4-1 defeat to Wales at Wrexham, their heaviest since 1964. 
Giles and Sansom. Nicholas. And the crowd rise as Mike England rises. And what for him will be an afternoon he'll never forget. His start to being manager of Wales. Congratulated by the England players, the England manager and his assistants. And Wales have inflicted upon England their greatest margin of defeat since May the 30th, 1964, when England were beaten 5-1 by Brazil in Rio. Really all credit to Wales for a fine performance. They scored their third goal in a period when England seemed to be coming back into control. And from that moment onwards, a memorable victory was theirs. With the benefit of hindsight, it's almost certainly a very good thing that Euro 80 was not held in England. In their opening match against Belgium in Turin, they drew one all. But the following day's headlines were made by serious crowd disorder, which resulted in the Italian police firing tear gas inside the stadium. On the pitch, this was a bad result for England, with no semi-finals and only the group winners qualifying for the final and they were eliminated after losing their second match by a goal to nil against the host nation. They won their final match, a dead rubber against Spain, by a goal to nil in Naples, but this was broadly an irrelevance in comparison with what had occurred elsewhere. The hooliganism that had been germinating in England had now leapt from being a domestic issue to being a pan-European one, and now it had attached itself to the national team in the most visible way possible. It would be this phenomenon that would come to define the game in this country over the coming decade, as the multitude of issues that had been festering within English football for years started to manifest themselves into an ugliness that almost killed the game off here altogether.